You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. On the evening of October 21st, 1978, an event occurred that to this day has never been conclusively explained. An infamous 127 mile flight in which a young pilot named Frederick Valentich, who, after proceeding on course without issue, would later advise Melbourne Air Traffic Control that he was being accompanied by a massive and extremely fast moving unidentified aircraft somewhere above 5,000 feet. His last words to air traffic control were, it's not an aircraft, before communication was completely lost, and Fred vanished. An immediate search and rescue effort was initiated, but neither Fred nor his plane were ever seen or heard from again. His last radio communications has since left an eerie mark in Australian aviation history. And tonight on Into the Portal, we discuss the bizarre disappearance of Frederick Valentich. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with a brand new foray into the world of UFOs for you guys. <laughs> yeah. Woo. Pretty excited about it. I'm excited. It's like it's a mainstream case, but at the same time, it's kind of still got that aspect of obscurity to it for mm-hmm. people who aren't hardcore UFO enthusiasts, I think for sure. Yeah. And it happened across the world in Australia. Indeed. So again, it's a little more foreign. It's not on mm-hmm. uh, North American territory. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but before we get right into things too, Amber had a really cool idea. We wanted to kind of toss it out there to you guys. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I literally all... just mentioned this before we turned the Yeah, <laughs> but I love it. And I think you guys probably will too, um, where we, we usually start off the show where we we obviously do our housekeeping which we have today as well mm-hmm. but we always come back and we're like what's up guys like haven't been here for a while maybe <laughs> we have a, you know like because it always <laughs> feels that way because it, you know two weeks goes by fast but at the same time it feels like it's been a, a hot sec um Andrew's amber had this cool confusing. idea to <laughs> yeah amber had this really cool idea where we basically we want to just like at least toss out one or two kind of paranormal historical whatever it may be headlines for you guys yeah and we kind of butter you up well exactly and we love um everyone's always really active on our forum on into the portals forum as well as our uh, strange crew forum definitely um but like if anyone throws out anything really really cool we just want to like toss out headlines you know what's yeah. happening in the paranormal world so there was an interesting one recently mm-hmm. where uh you, i mean you mentioned it to me actually i saw it on twitter but there was sort of a strange uh okay yeah this is funny yeah because this is the classic case of something paranormal going mainstream and then i think adam barron's over on face or 
sorry, Adam Benedict of the Pine Barrens Institute yes. on Facebook. He made this co- funny comment. He's like, oh yeah, it's one of those times where all of your normal friends and big air quotes there reach out to you with this little headliner saying, hey, have you heard about this? And it's like, oh yeah, yes, I've already heard. And it was a Sasquatch mm. video, allegedly, yeah. right? So it was a Washington new alleged footage of a very mysterious bipedal figure off of the highway of, uh, I, I actually don't know which highway it was in Washington, somewhere mm-hmm. in Washington. And very mysterious. Mm-hmm. Looked like the classic, like, you know, like the walking kind of stature. What are your thoughts on that? My uh, Honestly, I watched the video. My initial thoughts were just that, like, it didn't strike me as being as good of a Sasquatch video as some of the other ones out there. But it's cool that it's so recent. You know actually, I mean? you know, it's funny. I saw the stills. I never actually saw the video. At least I think I saw the right video. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Because it's like, I've seen a lot of stills and now a lot of people are questioning this. Obviously, there's a lack of footprints. There's, um, it, it seems like almost stationary. This one singular 14 article is talking about that I've pulled up here in front of me. Cool. And this is another quote from the article here. It says, the WSDOT East, so this is like the, the webcam people, all but admitted that the figure is a cutout in another tweet stating that, quote, our signal slash sign shot manager knows the truth behind it. Oh. I'll see what I can find out, but he's very tight-lipped. So it could have been just like a cutout kind of thing. Ooh, it's almost like we got another sort of a dog man video situation type deal on our hands. What was that guy's name? Mm-hmm. Steve Cook. <sighs> Steve Cook. <laughs> Steve Cook. Anyway, that's honestly, that's just a kind of a taste. Like that's the type of thing we'd like to toss out there and do a little little quick paranormal news, a little paranormal whatever. The headlines. The headlines, mm-hmm. the ITP headlines. And then, yeah, just kind of like prime <laughs> us for the weird stuff we're going to talk about. It'll be our version of Colbert's Meanwhile Exactly, segment. exactly. <laughs> All right, well, I mean, you guys can ch- toss out suggestions for that and then we'll just, we'll, we'll play around with it moving forward. Yeah. Tiny bit of housekeeping. The Mm -hmm. usual housekeeping. Mm -hmm. Be Strange Apparel, the clothing line that we've launched through our network. It's up. We've had some people purchase some stuff, which has been awesome. The feedback Mm -hmm. has been really positive and really cool. And we do have a really awesome special offer right now where any purchase on the website, you guys get a free sticker. So Sasquatch sticker, the same forest creature. Mm -hmm. Um, Original artwork by our good friend Doodle Kev. Follow him on Instagram, and he's a part of our uh, strange, uh, straight-up strange network now as well. Mm -hmm. So make sure you guys check that out. The promo code is GETSTRANGE at checkout. And then you get a really sick vinyl sticker of, mm-hmm. uh, of our classic forest creature. All get in pointillism design. It's really sweet. Get strange, all one word. The idea of all of this, too, is to uh, help support the network because we have some really, really cool stuff we have planned for this year. So it's going to go into funding essentially like network originals and maybe even some film stuff down the road, but definitely audio content. And that's lots of cool things we want to do. So that's what mm-hmm. it's going into. It all supports indie podcasts. So definitely cool. Yeah. Last but not least on the housekeeping, a new Patreon episode is coming soon. So look forward to that, all you patrons out there. And for those of you who aren't patrons, hop on and check us out. We are going to be doing a really, really... It started off as a classic cryptozoological research episode, and it turned into something more. But we're looking at giant, mythical, and very real, massive, unidentified, really, like, turtles. Mm -hmm. Which is going to be fun. Looking, diving into the ancient past, obviously, that's where we love to start, mm-hmm. and working our way up into modern encounters. So it's going to be a really fun little trip. So join us on our Patreon if you guys uh, if you guys are there and, and you, you can support the show in any way, shape, or form. It all helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cup of coffee a month kind of deal, you know what I mean? And we've got a big <laughs> backlog on there now, too, which is pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. But let's dive into this. UFO stuff. We're talking about none other than the disappearance of uh, a young Australian pilot, a prolific story in Australia's history. Let's talk about the man, Fred. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're talking about the disappearance of Frederick Valentich, if you guys aren't familiar with that one already. So this happened under very strange circumstances and left <laughs> a very notorious wake of conspiracies and intrigue uh, in the following decades that continues to this day. Nothing in this, <laughs> even some people will claim mystery solved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that. But yes, we will. It's very, very ambiguous. Fred Valentich was actually born in the 50s, June 9th, 1958, Melbourne. He lived at home. He had three siblings, a brother and two sisters. He was the eldest. Mm -hmm. So that kind of paints a little nice picture of him. Sure. Very seemingly normal guy. According to multiple sources, he was a shop assistant at the Army Disposals. So it's a store in a place called, (laughs) I'm going to butcher this, Mooney Ponds. Mooney Ponds. Mooney Ponds. Okay, okay. Yep. Frederick was 20 years old when he was a member of the Air Training Corps. So this was a volunteer youth cadet program that was sponsored by the Australian Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. He had a private, private pilot's license uh, for a little over a year at the time of his disappearance. Yeah. So Fred, you could consider him a motivated young man. He wanted to be a commercial pilot. He aspired to be, despite having his cut work, work cut out for him. Sorry. Yeah. Anyways, he had been studying part-time to become a commercial pilot He, I wouldn't call him book smarts by any means. He seemed to have some trouble in his schooling. He actually failed twice in all five commercial license examinations. He kind of had a little bit of a poor record overall as a student. And as recently as the previous month, he had failed three more commercial license subjects. So there was a lot of tests that go on in order. Like, you know, there's so many different like levels and certifications that you do when you're training to become a pilot. And And it ain't easy. It's not. Yeah. Joe Nickel of Skeptical Inquirer definitely makes makes much of this. He he uses this a lot um, to paint a picture of Fred as someone that is just... Incapable to a certain degree of being a successful pilot, he paints him as a, as a utter moron. Is essentially how the Skeptical and Inquirer article reads. Uh, um, dangerous to himself as well, kind of is the you know, yeah, which we feel is kind of an unfair characterization. But we'll get into that later. A little bit, yeah. That being said, though, he does have a little bit of a murky record. He had on two occasions applied to enlist in the Royal Air Force of Australia, mm-hmm. but he was rejected because of these inadequate educational qualifications. Right. So he, he was determined, I would say, but yeah, he he wanted to be a pilot. He did get his license. Sorry, this was his student pilot license. So almost like, you know, like when you get your L or your Entry N. level, yeah, for Yeah, sure. very, very entry level. And then he had his private pilot's license by the following September. Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So he, yeah, so I mean, he was an aspiring pilot. He had motivation, but he clearly was struggling a little bit. And it reminds me of a lot of people that I know that are mm-hmm. maybe mechanically inclined or really good with certain things, but not necessarily, weren't necessarily like book smart, mm-hmm. right? Or it didn't or, translate that way. Or another way you can look at it too is people that are super passionate about something, but it's, it's, it is difficult, right? Like even just, I'm thinking of people that we know that have applied to get into vet school and stuff. And like, you know, just like different areas where... It's tough. It, yeah. It's kind of cutthroat a little bit, and I'm not sure how competitive these actual, like, you know, what he was doing at the time, but... In the 1970s in Australia, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure it was still equally as competitive as it is now. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a tough... It's tough. It's hard to get mm-hmm. into to... I mean, we don't know how badly he actually failed these examinations. Like, we oh, didn't actually like a get that or... far mm-hmm. into it, right? Like, did you have to get a minimum of, like, a 75? Like, it's like your real estate exam. Like, when I wrote that, you had to get, like, 75, right? Right. But yeah. if you got less than that, you didn't pass. But, like, 74, it's like, okay, you're not an utter moron. But, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You just so, didn't like, quite context, context matters. But 
he he did get himself into trouble regardless of what your perspective is on his like educational ability. Um, so he did pass his private licensing exam. This maybe went to his head a little bit because he did get into some trouble. And this has been, like we said a second ago, really emphasized by researchers like Joe Nickel and some of the ones that are hardcore skeptics to emphasize how inexperienced he was, right? Mm-hmm. So there was two flying incidents that were pretty interesting, honestly, uh, that he did get in trouble for. And this is fodder for the skeptics, right? So one of them was straying into a controlled zone uh, near Sydney. So he just went into airspace he wasn't supposed to be in. He received a warning for this one. And then apparently twice he deliberately uh, flew into like clouds, I guess. And hmm. and this we're going to come back to this a little later because there's some speculation about this, that this is tied into his UFO interests. And that has been maybe blown out of proportion too. But There was prosecution being considered for this because I guess it was a fairly dangerous thing to do. I'm not a private pilot. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. For various reasons. Like I did look into this, uh, just, yeah, like basic, I think it it was an Australian website too. It was like Australian aviation licensing, I don't even know what it was called. But anyways, it was kind of the official body and just talking about all this literature about how it is very dangerous to fly into a cloud, obviously for a few different reasons. You can't see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you could potentially get moisture. It could uh, lead to short circuiting failure of your mechanical whatever, whatever parts. Whatever it may be. There's a lot of different things. You could obviously have a midair collision as well. So he was living with, on the edge a little bit with uh, with that. And there were charges apparently that were being considered. They were dropped. He was never charged with anything. Mm-hmm. It was just another another slap on the wrist for Fred. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely something that we we will come back to when we're trying to make judgments as the as to the validity of his story and then the stories for people who don't believe the UFO side of it. He was engaged at the time of his disappearance. He had a young girlfriend. She was 16 when they first got together. Fred was a little bit older. His name, her name was Rhonda uh, Rushton and we'll come back to her later, but this just kind of goes in with him getting in trouble flying and things like that. She did state in later interviews that she was becoming aware before Fred's disappearance that he wasn't like lying to her or anything, but he wasn't really being entirely truthful in his day-to-day activities. You know, he did uh, fib, let's call it that. He embellished uh, how far along he had been in his studies to her and mm-hmm. to his family. Right. That to me doesn't strike me as, uh, I, I mean, I did that to my parents in high school and things <laughs> like that, right? Yeah. Um, that doesn't strike me as anything like over the moon strange no it's almost just like trying to reassure them like oh no i'm fine i'm doing it i'm I'm slowly making this happen and even though you're not really making it happen to the degree that you would like yeah that to me yeah that doesn't speak to like an unstable personality or anything like that it's just so whether or not that's just a simple embellishment or something more i mean we can come back to that later but ultimately Rhonda, his his fiance at the time had nothing but great things to say about fred and she had uh, flown with him on a number of occasions and felt very confident in his flying ability and never had any close encounter close close encounters <laughs> didn't have those but uh you know close calls essentially right? right so he had about 150 total flying hours at the time and he held this class four instrument rating designation so this authorized him to actually fly at night even though by multiple accounts he was not a fan of flying at night fred was really only keen on flying during the day Mm -hmm. which is another aspect of the story that's kind of odd because he chose to make this flight in the evening obviously his this disappearance happened uh in the evening after Mm -hmm. sunset and it was something that he clearly didn't he preferred not to do so we'll come back to that as well but this designation this technical designation allowed him to fly in what was quote-unquote like visual meteorological conditions so like you can see essentially high visibility 
you know, not poor weather, like clouds coming in, you know, no I cloud see. cover, no nothing, no, no, no uh, high winds, like very low right. wind, basically just perfect conditions for somebody with this m- amount of hours to be able to fly. I see. Yeah. Cause there are definitely, when I was looking into this again, all these like aviation certifications and things like that and, and the effects of clouds. So another effect of cloud cover is, uh, it can lead to like, you know, like, um, temper not temperature, sorry, uh, pressure variations, yeah. which can lead to turbulence, which if you're a non-experienced pilot, you can lose control of the, the actual craft exactly. itself. Yeah. Um, but that being the case, that's an interesting point you make because on the night of his disappearance, this was October 21st, 1978, he was actually turned away from flying the, the exact same. He had a plan a few right. days earlier to do this flight, and he was turned away because of poor weather conditions in the Bass Strait. Mm-hmm. And this was according to a few sources that we came across. So he came back a few days later to try again, and he ended up renting a little single-engine Cessna 182L. Yep. He filed his flight plan at the Moorabin. Moorabin? Moorabin. I'm sorry. Moorabin. Phonetically, that's how it's spelled. In Melbourne. And uh, he stated his intention was to fly to King Island in the Bass Strait via Cape Otway, pick up passengers, a.k.a. some friends, and then return back. Okay. However, this kind of adds to the mystery because he told his family something else. Right. His family, his girlfriend, and a few friends, he informed them that he was heading out on a pretty, quote-unquote, epic adventure to pick up some crayfish. Mm-hmm. Crayfish, eh? And you got to go at night? I mean, late night crayfish snacking. Getting, I mean, I don't know. I'm getting suspicious. This feels like an episode of Murder She Wrote, where the guy's like involved in some like really low level like gang, like you know, like maybe it's not crayfish, it's it's something else. I don't know, maybe he's a yeah, like a smuggler of some type, like you know, like are you yeah, you're that's teeing, perfect. You're teeing that up for later. Sorry, I don't know a little bit. Just all of this is kind of like you know, red flag, red flag, red flag. It is for sure. A little bit. Anyways, I love this quote from you. You're like, a little more intense than popping down to the store. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. It's dark. You don't like flying at night. Yeah. Uh, clearly, you're super into crayfish because you're going to go to all that effort. Yeah. And, and why, are, why are you going by yourself, though, too? Why wouldn't well, you take a friend or, you know what I mean? Like, where are you getting these crayfish? Or take what your, was take the your fiance. Why, why wasn't Rhonda going with him? She went with him on all kinds of other trips, mm-hmm. little day trips and flying around. And So why night? Why crayfish? Why alone? Very strange. So many questions. And we're going to get back to this in our theories. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So we've slowly kind of painted the picture leading up to the actual rental of the Cessna and and the flight. So Fred had taken off on his flight towards King Island, departing from Moribin Airport in Victoria at approximately 6.19 p.m. And was piloting this, this plane we mentioned, the rented signal engine Cessna 182 light aircraft registered under a... the number VHDSJ, uh, the uh, the registration, like what's that? What's that called? Like the uh, identification, mm-hmm. right? So he's flying over the Bass Strait, and just for some context here, the Bass Strait uh, it's a sea strait separating Tasmania from the mainland, from the Australian mainland, uh, specifically from the state of Victoria, like we mentioned. So it's about. 250 kilometers wide, uh, 500 kilometers long. Its average depth is around 200 feet. Uh, widest opening is about 350 kilometers. It's a good stretch of water. So if you're not like a super experienced pilot, I guess it would look technically a little sketchy. I love how we go from like metric to imperial to metric. <laughs> it's for everyone, right? It's just a little bit for everybody. So, but yeah, I mean, it is still a pretty typical flight. People do it all the time. According to an Australian flight blog that I found... But yeah, according to this blog, pilots typically go from Melbourne southwest along the coast to Cape Otway, uh, which is the closest point on the mainland 
to King Island. So this is kind of like the typical, that's the typical route. Mm-hmm. And I actually saw like, cause I looked up other examples of flights in the area and that definitely, yeah, that seemed to be the case. That would be like their usual, yeah, the regular service. Right. Mm-hmm. And I guess that potentially ties into the little lead up you, the little uh, Easter egg you dropped a minute ago there on like drug trafficking, strange mm-hmm. things going on because it was a high traffic zone for things that weren't that obviously, mm-hmm. but Anyway, we'll come back Mm. to that because there's lots of strange stuff. Mm. The weather was clear. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been allowed to fly, obviously, because you had that technical designation, right? Mm -hmm. Kings Island uh, is about halfway between the main island of Tasmania and mainland Australia. And his flight proceeded uneventfully at at first. This was totally normal. There was calm weather. There's no other air traffic in the area to be seen. There's nothing on radar, nothing that he reported after he took off initially. It was about... A half hour after sunset, when he turned away from the coast, Fred, at an altitude of about 4,500 feet, and he began this long, long stretch over water at this point, uh, which would have been essentially the most quote-unquote dangerous part of this routine flight. Mm -hmm. But if you're feeling confident, it's really not dangerous. I mean, the plane's totally capable of it. You've got the range. You've got all this stuff, right, if you know what you're doing. Right. So this is where we get the first radio communications between Fred and... uh, Roby, who was the air traffic control in Melbourne, and Fred radioed in to report that he was traveling with a cruising speed of around uh, 256 kilometers, 160 miles per hour. Visibility was good. The winds were light, so he was reporting the conditions. And he had departed from Moribin, contacted Melbourne Flight Service Unit to inform them of his presence in, in the air, essentially, mm-hmm. so, and reported reaching Cape Otway at 1,900 hours. So let's listen in. To, this is a reenactment of the conversation that was recorded between Fred and Melbourne. It's available on YouTube. Apparently, the original audio was at one point available and has now been since taken down. I there couldn't was, find it anywhere. Earlier, we were listening to a version. They claimed it was the original. And so I'm not really sure if that's true or not. The, they, there was, yeah, the, the metallic scraping. That's We've got the yeah. original of that. This is a recreation, okay. but it's, uh, but it's uh, still pretty spooky. So let's take a listen. being a reenactment obviously those last words there where it's hovering 
over me and it's like, and it's not an aircraft is pretty spooky. Yeah. There was a lot of really interesting, um, descriptors that he used to, uh, yeah, describe the behaviors of this craft. A lot of it, we've covered uh, Charlie Red Star in the past. That was a Manitoba UFO case. Very, very, uh, well, to us it was very infamous, but it's not very widely known. No, not in that case. In that case, we had like a reoccurring UFO incident um, over a period of about two years. And there was this one case uh, that was reported by Manitoba pilots they encountered something that looked like an orb-like entity making very similar maneuvers, like almost like playing games with them, as it was described, like right. non-ballistic motion, um, racing forward, shooting backward, circling over to like orbiting around them kind of thing, playing games with each other too. I think they reported um, yeah. up to three of them at one point. Right. Very strikingly similar. What are your thoughts? Well, apparently this recreation is uh, almost to a T the, the tone and uh, inflection of the original audio. Mm-hmm. which is important because mm-hmm. that's going off what you're saying right now. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah, that totally reminded me of, of those, uh, of the Manitoba pilots case because it was, it was the same as like, it seems like it's playing some sort of game. Mm-hmm. That's such a weird part of that communications. The, the shape that was described too. He said it was like a long shape, right? He described multiple lights too, almost similar to the, like landing lights on a plane. Is that what was the exact? Well, why don't we just let, let's do this. Let's break this down in a little yeah. bit more detail. Cause we've listened to the audio. We've pulled essentially uh, information combined, combined from MUFON, uh, abc.net.adu and mm-hmm. the Australian national archives and their like transportation documents released, uh, about the search, Exactly, so, so the official record, so to speak. Yeah. And so we described how at 1900 hours, Valentich left the coast. He was traveling, and then at about six minutes later, so 1900 hours and six minutes, Valentich asked uh, Melbourne flight officer Steve Roby for information on other aircraft below 5,000 feet or 1,524 meters. He was told that there was no known traffic at that level. Right. So like we heard. Yeah. Uh, Valentich, she also said he could see a large unknown aircraft, which appeared to be illuminated by four bright landing lights. And he, unable to confirm its type, he said it had passed about 1,000 feet or 300 meters overhead of him and moving at a high speed. He then reports that the aircraft was approaching from the east and said that the other pilot might be purposely toying or playing with him, quote, playing some sort of game. Right. That's very eerie. Yeah. Irie, if you're Michael Scott. <laughs> Irie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was the behavior of Charlie in the Charlie Red Star case. It Very was playful. So. And yeah, changing shapes too. Charlie was known to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting part here too. You and I were talking about that before we recorded because because we kind of added a section where we were like, it would be cool to try to identify the craft. Like what shape mm-hmm. was it? What type of UFO could we designate it as? But it, it almost seemingly sort of, it, it does change. Mm-hmm. He, he describes it as being long. Obviously it's the shiny metallic outer perspective yeah. he mm-hmm. sees right yeah but then we have the uh description of the landing lights there is this triangular shape that comes up in the skeptical inquirer mm-hmm. article with their take well, the on triangulation of the constellation that he thinks is what valentich mistook for an ufo right but then we'll that, but that, that wouldn't be end up being a cigar shaped ufo no presumably. that's more like a almost like a pyramid shape almost. right because he describes four landing lights right I don't know. It's very strange. So very shortly after this, 1909, okay, <laughs> not the year, uh, 1900 hours and nine minutes. <laughs> I suck at 24-hour clock stuff. It just makes it sound more technical, even though uh, we butchered anyway. But Steve Roby, he asked Valentich to confirm his altitude. 
that he was unable to identify whatever aircraft that Valentich was describing. So he gives him the altitude, 4,500 feet. He said the aircraft was long. So this is where we get this potentially, like the idea that it was a cigar-shaped UFO, which I'm trying to off the top of my head here, didn't add it in, think of a case where a prominent cigar-shaped UFO case. Maybe we can come back to that. It was traveling way too fast for him to describe it in more detail, though. So this non-ballistic motion, because obviously if something was traveling that quickly and it wasn't non-ballistic motion, there would you'd think that the noise would be immense, don't you think? A large craft that can go way faster than what he's traveling already mm-hmm. at 160 miles per hour, it would be a jet engine or it would be something noisy if it was earthbound. Well, that's an interesting thing that you bring up. A lot of times with UFO encounters, obviously there's no noise. Right. Nothing recorded. Exactly. In this case, actually, we will get into um, some noises that were emitted, and we'll get into that in a minute, though. You're jumping ahead there. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. So he described, he said the aircraft was long, but traveling too fast for him to see in more detail. Then stopped transmitting for about 30 seconds. So these, the gaps were stopped in that recreation, right? Like they, they sped it up. But there was no transmissions for about 30 seconds. And during this time, Steve Roby asked for an estimate of the aircraft size. Then Valentich gets back to him, stating that it was orbiting him, like we heard, orbiting above him, and that it had, as he described, a shiny metal surface and a green light that was really distinct. Mm -hmm. The green light comes up again later on, too with other yeah. potential sightings, which is kind of strange. Definitely. This was then followed by another 28 seconds of silence before Valentich said that the aircraft had then vanished. After this, another 25-second break in the communications, so basically silence, just air static, before Valentich reported that it was now approaching him from the southwest. Okay? 29 seconds later, another gap at 7.12 p.m. I've switched away from the 24-hour clock here. Valentich reported that he was experiencing engine problems. So we can talk about that later in theories too. So at this time, he's experiencing engine problems. He's going to proceed to King Island nevertheless, obviously. There was a brief silence until he said, it is hovering and it's not an aircraft. Then we've got 17 seconds of unidentified noise described as being very strange metallic scraping sounds before all contact was completely lost. Mm Mm-hmm. This is allegedly the original audio, not from not a recreation of the metallic scraping sounds uh, before we lo- they lost communication with Fred. So let's take a listen to that. Pretty strange, to say the least. Uh, this is something that's left out of many of the more skeptical accounts of yeah. our analysis of the these events. And if anything, they often just state that this was just sounds from a plane. It like was not, just, yeah. it was just under stress, yeah. right? Because he he had just reported that he was experiencing mechanical whatever. Exactly. Um, when you listen to it, though, it to me the first thing it reminded me of was a electric can opener, like yeah. you know when you're like 
trying to get through something like almost like in that scene in uh, Greece when they're doing like the car race and then um, the guy like the cheapo guy from the other <laughs> the other crew <laughs> he pulls out he's got like those crazy like blade things on his wheels yes. and he starts to tear at the metal of the of I, Danny's car I totally agree yeah. because it's got like a scraping but it's also got these light clunk clunking sounds like mm-hmm. when you're turning like when you're open yeah when you're opening a can you mm-hmm. know what I mean it's like mm-hmm. it's it's scraping the metal but it's also kind of like that like it's got, there's more going on there. And because the audio of that is there, but nothing from Fred is odd. Unless, That's strange. Yeah. There's right? no, yeah, there's no he's voice. Not screaming. No he's, not, he's not afraid. He's not talking about what's happening to him in that exact mm-hmm. instance. There's just nothing. Nothing. We're going to come back to these metallic sounds at the end during our sort of conclusions and discussion overall. Yes. Um, let's get into the disappearance, though, because obviously it. at this point, this is when we have our last known record of communication from Valentich's plane. Right. Roby lost all communications and no one knew where he had ended up. Yes. It didn't take long for a search and rescue to amass and then obviously the media to latch onto this and take hold of this incident. Before we get into the actual logistics of the search and everything else that followed, we're going to get into a brief little promo break for Forgotten Darkness. And this is one of our very own shows, part of the Straight Up Strange Network. And it's really fun. So join host Andrew Gable as he looks through old newspaper accounts, other obscure media sources, and dredges up many, many stories that you otherwise don't hear on a lot of more mainstream paranormal shows. Definitely. So it could be true crime, paranormal, or just a really strange story. Um, they're all found on his awesome little podcast, Forgotten Darkness. So listen in here and check him out along with many other great shows at the Straight Up Strange Network at straightupstrange.com. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. A man in Brazil dies from severe burns, maybe from a UFO. In Washington, D.C., Jack the Slasher breaks into a house and barely steals anything, but dumps molasses all over a piano and cuts up curtains and sofas. I'm Andrew Gable, and on Forgotten Darkness, I'll look through old newspapers and other sources to find those lesser-known stories of yesteryear. I look mostly at true crime and unexplained phenomena. So if either of those topics sounds like your sort of thing, check us out. You can find the podcast at ForgottenDarkness.Podbean.com or on most podcast apps. All right, and we're back. Okay, so let's get into the search and rescue operation here. Yeah. The alert was given just after 1912 minutes. Mm-hmm. 1900 hours, 12 minutes. <laughs> We're yeah. going back to the 24 hours. 712. 712 <laughs> <laughs> in the evening. Valentich failed to arrive at King Island by 733. Is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's right. seven. Yeah, seven. Yeah. You just yes. subtract two. That's 20, the rule. I can do 24 hour clock, you guys. Mm-hmm. All right. We're smart sometimes. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Anyways, um, so this is when the sea and air search commenced. Two RAAF P3 Orion aircraft searched over a seven-day period. Yeah. So a whole week they were searching out it there. It was a hardcore effort for sure. Overall search efforts continued until the 25th of October, 1978. Mm-hmm. There were... Not a lot of clues to be found. The only thing that they really found as far as like physical evidence was a possible oil slick 
that initially was believed to be from Fred's plane. However, analysis of this slick, uh, it was found roughly near where Valentich had last had radio communication. Right. However, it proved that it was not aviation fuel, and okay. there was no other trace of aircraft, uh, like any sort of like debris found or anything like that. Right. The aircraft was equipped with four life jackets and also an emergency radio beacon, and it was designed to stay afloat for at least several minutes. So it's not as if it would just go plummeting in and just Sink disappear. Exactly. Right? Like the fuselage would have stayed afloat for mm-hmm. a little, like, and the uh, presumably unless it like just broke apart into a million pieces, right? That's yeah, exactly. If it was like a yeah, if it disintegrated in the air, or if it was picked up but by the thing a larger that, aircraft the, the, in the air. Exactly. Because mm. the strange thing about losing communication is that there was no weather reasons for the communication mm-hmm. to be lost. There was no other known aircraft in the area that could have messed up the communication nothing. in some way or whatever, right? Yeah, nothing there, on radar. There was nothing to indicate a malfunction in in the communications because they still had the gaps and then the metallic scraping sound, like audio was being transmitted. It just wasn't from the mouth of Frederick Valentich, which is very, very odd to me. Unless There's, somehow... Like what I'm he saying had lost is that consciousness, if we, if you know it, what I mean? Potentially, yeah, and that's totally that's totally possible. Like flying upside down or going in a weird way, yeah. Like you you head rush and like you, yeah, you can go unconscious. What if you lost maneuvers. cabin pressure? You know what I mean? It's possible, but then if the audio is being recorded of metallic scraping sounds during that period where he's not able to speak, wouldn't you also get the sounds of him pummeling into the straight? Wouldn't you get Wouldn't you get a recording of the like, wouldn't it be more than just a strange metallic scraping? It would be the sound of a plummeting aircraft, don't you think? Hypothetically. Hypothetically. I'm not a professional when it comes to this stuff, but I'm just tossing that out there. We can come back to that. So during this accident investigation, it was learned that Frederick's two reasons for being in the air that night were both invalid. Right. He had no passengers to pick up at King Island, nor had he ordered any crayfish. Hmm. hmm. And interestingly enough, which people around him should have been aware of, crayfish weren't even available at that exact time. Apparently, according to some sources. Mm-hmm. Like, but wasn't I guess, the season? I, not crayfish season? For those of you familiar crawfish? with... crawfish? Are we saying crawfish? this wrong? <laughs> no, well, in Canada, we call them crayfish. Okay. I used to catch them. You can catch them in Christina Lake. They're tiny. They're not the same it's as cray, the not craw. They say crawfish in the south. They do, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, we pronounce <laughs> things with A's up here. <laughs> That's so funny. I just literally had like one of that flash of anxiety. We're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even realize. Yeah, Yeah, we don't even know. We don't know. (laughs) Don't you know? (laughs) If you don't know, now you know. know. That was the best. Oh man, that was so great. So good. Well, okay. Let's try to add a little bit more to this and talk about some other strange sightings the same night of Valentich's disappearance because Mm -hmm. there were definitely more than one. And they tie into not just the lights that Valentich claimed that he saw, but definitely something large and unidentified in the uh, in the general vicinity of his last known location. Mm-hmm. So the main one was a photo. There was a series of photos, but there was one particular one. It was taken by an amateur photographer by the name of Roy Manifold. And he was, according to a few other sources, he was an amateur photographer, full-time professional plumber, mm-hmm. and he was just into taking pictures, usually done with a tripod, like he liked doing landscape shots. So he set up a time-lapse camera, and this was on the same night, so this was October 21st, and he had set up this tripod on the shoreline in order to kind of photograph the sun and, you know, setting over the water, getting this beautiful wide-angle shot, and he had taken multiple photos, and in the last photograph, there was this odd black spot 
you know, some people saw it as a, a clear developing error, but when you look at it, there's there's depth to it. And so that was this really strange black spot in the upper right corner of the frame of this photograph. And he himself initially believed that this was just an error, that this was just something on the lens or some sort of developing error. But when he had taken the um, the original to an examiner, a local like photo expert in Melbourne, to inspect the original, they found no dirt or damage on the negative. They couldn't really come up with any explanation for it. So this strange mark was determined at the time uh, to be legitimately in the photograph. Later, there was further analysis of it. This was done uh, in the U.S. So I, I I didn't actually get further details on this, but apparently it was. It was done outside the country. And analysis determined that the mark was likely a metallic object. Huh. Interesting. Then in even more detail, some who are analyzing the photograph the second time outside of Australia determined that they thought there was a very clearly visible cloud of something being uh, emanated from this, whether this was from the object, the unidentified object, or potentially the exhaust from Valentich's plane being taken into a craft, if you're really going to go down that road. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what some people claim to see uh, also, in extreme detail, mm-hmm. I don't really know how this one's done because there isn't a ton to go off in terms of depth, but the, it was roughly determined to be about a mile away from the camera, hmm. according to some sources. But much, much more recent analysis has uh, determined that the spot was indeed most likely, is the key two words here, a developing error, but it's still not definitive. So okay. we don't really know what Roy had in there. Uh, he believes that he captured the image of what appeared to be a fast-moving object exiting the water near Cape Otway, near the lighthouse of Cape Otway, the same time and the same location uh, that Fred experienced what he experienced. So very, yes. very strange. That is strange. Um, to, to give a specific time, too, Manifold yeah. gave the time of these pictures was taken at approximately 6.47 p.m., so about 20 oh, minutes. 20 minutes before. Roughly. So we we don't know if this was the same. Actually, more like thirty minutes because he was ex- he was kind of like still in communication at seven oh nine and seven twelve. Keyword being approximately, approximately because yeah. he wasn't stop watching that. So it could have been twenty minutes, give or take. He he doesn't know exactly. There wasn't, mm-hmm. I guess, a timestamp on his camera. Like hmm. I don't know. Like interesting. This is in the nineteen seventies. I know digital cameras now have timestamps when you take a photo. But uh, yeah. Anyway, I've got a little bit more to add to that too because this gets into the whole idea of sound again. And we had those that recording of the weird metallic scraping sounds. Roy was also accompanied by his son that evening, Jason. This was taken from a different article, but it says here that essentially after his father had taken these pictures. He had gone inside and Jason had remained outside. So the sun was watching the sky and he says here, he didn't see anything, but he could hear the sound of a plane overhead. And instead of gradually fading off into the distance, the engine suddenly came to a stop as if someone had turned off a radio. Then there was nothing but silence. Very strange. That's weird. Hey, I just wanted to include that as part of the, because like that kind of lends itself to a little bit more going on than just a smudge on a, you know, something that you developed or something. Totally. And a lot of the uh, articles you'll find online and things like that, they include Roy Manifold. They don't mention that part of it. They don't include his son. Mm-hmm. Like basically every other article we found. Hmm. That's a kind of a significant detail. Yeah. Corroborating. There's another human being there, even if it's a child. 
Even if, yeah, exactly. Or kid, whatever, teenager, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. There was another anonymous report as well. Um, which was kind of yeah. odd. Do you want to take mm-hmm. that one? Yeah, this one was just more of like sighting of strange lights that came out and it was on the same night in question as uh, Valentich's disappearance. And this was from an anonymous source. So they didn't want to be named, but right. they did claim to be a witness on the ground and they described seeing a green light just above uh, the plane that was Valentich's plane. He was the only pilot in the area, so yes. makes sense. It was interesting because it kind of took a little bit uh, before this came out. I believe it was about two years kind of lag on this one. So is this just a product of the story as it as it grew in pop culture and in the media over time? Is this something that, yeah, exactly. Is, is this something that lends credence to what Valentich described in his right. radio contact? And it's interesting because the color is similar, right? The yeah. green color. Obviously, it's coming out as an anonymous source, though. So it's not as if it's like, oh, it's two years later. You know, I'm just going to, uh, I'm interested in UFOs. I'm going to kind of kick, kick you know, kick the story up again, or not that it needed to be. It was still mm-hmm. very much in the headlines two years later. But, you know, it's not coming out saying, this is Harry so-and-so who, and I saw the lights, and, like, I want my my time in the limelight because I saw something similar to Fred. Mm-hmm. So that part of it I find to be a little bit more legit, even as an anonymous source. But, yeah, I, guess I mean, so. again, guys like Joe Nickel, they'll latch on to this anonymous source yeah. and say they're they were experiencing the same meteorological stuff that fred was or seeing the same seeing the same constellation yeah right and it's just more it's just more evidence to his argument which makes no sense well but he's one of those he's one of those people that almost constructs a not like yeah kind of a straw man argument i guess because he uses things that support his argument and disclude other things that don't support it and and the majority of what he does a lot of the time is character based he he makes character he, he judges people's character um and then uses that to emphasizes points mm-hmm. essentially which i think is the ultimate dick move essentially <laughs> anyways uh, but this this other this next one that you're getting into i loved what this like mm-hmm. this really adds to me like even though it is very strange yeah. adds to me some sort of element to kind of maybe explain these metallic scraping sounds <sighs> totally and it and it just goes to show how how much this story means to the ufo community around the world and in australia because at the time so this was a 2014 article uh, 36 years on at this point, uh, and according to a prominent Victorian UFO action group, they uh, are—they were basically you know, they've they've been researching this account since it happened and trying to find more witnesses and trying to figure out what exactly happened to Fred because it's a sad story. There's a plaque for for Fred now. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly where. I mean, it's it, it's it's sad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's an it's a fascinating case, but it also is a lot of. A lot of pain and suffering for his family and, and and his fiance at the time and things like that. And a lot of unanswered questions. But they wanted to, this particular UFO action group wanted to help identify a particular farmer who is living near Adelaide who reportedly witnessed uh, a craft hovering over his property the same morning after, or sorry, the morning after Valentich went missing. So this hmm. is on the 22nd. Okay. So it's claimed... Uh, that the that a Cessna was stuck to the side of the craft, leaking oil. The farmer even allegedly scratched the plane's registration number into his tractor, what? witnessing this hovering over his property, clearly at a low altitude. Mm-hmm. But didn't come forward with the information because he was 
he let people know his neighbors know and a few people close by and he was ridiculed. So he never came forward with it. So the, but this was a story that I guess got leaked through the grapevine and mm. it's just another one of those little tidbit breadcrumb trails. For oh ufologists. yeah. It was folkloric. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, that's insane. It, it's like literally. So it was stuck like it magnetized to the side of this craft. I mean, like, there wasn't a ton more detail than that from this. I, I, I was I think it fused I, onto it. Maybe that was the metallic sounds that we heard. Maybe. You had an interesting theory on that too. We'll come to in a, in a mm-hmm. hot sack here, but that's kind of like what we could find for other witnessed events, like that were right along the same timeline for Valentin. Mm-hmm. Very very strange. Yeah, and same evening. We actually further along here. I'm going to pull up some other examples just for the area in question. Before we do that, though, of course, let's go down. <laughs> Let's go down the skeptical road. Yeah, we <laughs> Break have down to. the validity of the story. Sure. Mm-hmm. To see if he really did get abducted. Or was he just a dummy? Right? Because like, like we've already mentioned a few times now, Joe Nickel, Skeptical Inquirer, he wrote an article called Mystery Solved. Which Valentich. is like the most unscientific title you could ever have it is. for it's, something it's, that you categorically cannot prove to be true. Exactly. It's one of those, um, what's it called, clickbait article, yeah. like, you know, just headlines. Anyway, so he really gets into this idea of Valentich having a controversial record as a pilot in general. Uh, pockmarked record, young and experienced, only about 150 flight hours logged. He was rejected, like we said before, from the Australian Royal Air Force, citing lack of education. And he had also failed to obtain his commercial flight school exams, like failed to obtain them, sure. failed to pass them, like I we guess. Mentioned, yeah. Failed to obtain his commercial flight record. Anyways. <laughs> He struggled Andrew, with the books. The way like, Andrew's rolling his eyes right now. He's like, just get on with you're it. Just, well, you're just rephrasing it like 500 different times. It's I know. Like, it doesn't matter. He sucked at school. He, he did. didn't pass his exams. That's all people need to know. Anyways, I just wanted to contradict this a tiny bit. Not contradict it, but just like counteract it because we've talked about this before. When we did our Great Lakes Triangle, we did uh, missing ships. We also did missing planes. And we talked about how these very experienced pilots, right? Like commercial pilots and then also flying smaller craft similar to the Cessna. Right. How they had experienced these inexplicable events, how they had ended up in areas where they had no idea how they got there. One guy had crash landed into the forest just, I think, off the coast of uh, Lake Michigan. Something like that. The coast. There was the, the Mon- shores. The shores. There was the Felix Moncla case, right? Yes. Referenced that one too, of course. And so we got into this concept of how these very experienced pilots can have something called like pilot's fatigue or like, you know, like they kind of just slip into bad habits or lose the intricacies of their original training, right? Where they kind of like, you know, it's the classic where you just skip a step here and there or something, or you just kind of whatever, just become lazy or something like that. Not lazy, but you know what I mean? You just get... You become cavalier. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And how on the flip side of that, very inexperienced pilots a lot of the times uh, display like inverse behaviors where they're hyper aware of things. Mm -hmm. And especially Valentich, if you want to talk about him specifically, the idea that he had never... He'd done this flight before during the day, never done it during the night. Yes. So this to him would be a new experience. He would have been like, you would think he would be on his like, you know on his best behavior, so to speak. He right. would be checking all of his boxes, like, you know, making sure, because he was nervous. He didn't want to do it during the night, but why was he doing it during but the he night? Is he a drug to. smuggler? I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he did ultimately choose to. He did. And even though it was the first time he had done this particular flight at nighttime, he had obviously flown at nighttime before. Yeah, but what, had- the point I was trying to make was that you would 
probably be paying more attention to the little things as opposed to say you've done this flight thousands of times, gone over Michigan, you know, countless hours logged and all this stuff. He would have been not as susceptible to this like pilot's fatigue is kind of my main point, I guess I'm trying to make. Yeah. No. And that makes total sense. And that, you know, honestly, like I don't want to, I don't want to poo poo all over the, (laughs) the skeptical inquire article Mm -hmm. because it's, there's elements of it that make sense for sure. Mm -hmm. And we'll break it down a little bit more, but I do want to make the point that the idea and the emphasis of the words inexperienced, you know, uh, mainly that word really just that it's complete it's it is subjective because yes 150 hours is not a ton of flying time but it's one of those things where it's like this was an extremely young man you can't really hold it against him that he doesn't have more time he only had been alive for so long and doing this for so long you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like i get it i get that point but it doesn't mean you're inexperienced it's just you have like 150 hours is still a decent chunk of time. This is then compounded with the idea that he had two flying incidents, right? even though those were deliberate, more or less. It's not mm-hmm. like it was like a near-death experience or something. It wasn't an accident. It was an incident. Right. A and violation. So these are compounded together to kind of make this generalization that he was, quote-unquote, inexperienced, when in reality, the perception from his family, his friends, and some colleagues that he knew was that he was competent that he knew what he was doing Rhonda, his fiance at the time he disappeared they took many many flights together and she stated in a recent interview that she always felt nothing but safe flying with fred they never had any close calls you know for someone you know for someone who's that inexperienced i mean there was no indication that anything bad was going to happen yeah, it was only 150 hours, but it's just it's Optimal making a it's making a character judgment. It is based on a number you see on a piece of paper. 150, dumb dumb. And, and looking at the numbers of yeah, his schooling and all that kind of right. stuff, he really leans on that for his argument. Yeah, mm-hmm. There was a UFO investigator named George Simpson who would later state the exact opposite of this. He would state that this was for for being so young, a quote unquote experienced pilot mm-hmm. who should have been able to identify another aircraft that was that he was clearly unable to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was only 150 hours. But think about it: 150 hours that's a long time. is kind of a long time. Like that's you could fly every day of the year for what 15 plus minutes. How, quick flights, hours. like it's right, like it's it's 150 hours. That's like how many podcast episodes of ours? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, the point I'm trying to make is that he he did know what he was doing by all accounts. And he was prepared and he, anyways, I always, I'm, I'm going back to my drug smuggling. Anyways, let's get into yeah. that in a second here. Let's continue the breakdown because Joe goes on, right? This nickel character, he does paint a picture of uh, Valentich being obsessed with UFO lore. Quote, he says, the young pilot was enthralled with UFOs, watching films and accumulating articles on the topic. So not just interested, but quote, enthralled with UFOs. So this is painting a very specific, almost to the point, verging on obsession to, in my mind. That's, that's kind of, yeah. that's the picture he's trying to paint is what Definitely. I'm trying to say. Definitely. And it's interesting because we haven't mentioned this yet, but according to his father, so Valentich's father, he the young man had seen a UFO earlier that year and he observed it moving very fast away from him. I don't think he was flying at the time. I believe he was stationed on the ground. Yes. Can you attest that? I can attest to that. <laughs> I'm just like, so we're staring at each other being like, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, no, it, it was, yeah. A, it was a ground sighting. Yeah. Yeah. And he had expressed to his father that, uh, 
he was kind of concerned of attack of UFOs, supposedly. This was from uh, Schiffer's uh, 2013 book. Anyways, so that was another thing. I we've already we've already mentioned this as well. So okay, so we have a young man. It is the 1970s. Come on, people. 1978. There's a ton of UFO movies and just like you know, general like even oh, what year was? Actually, no, no, no. We're, I'm thinking Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That was the 60s. Close Encounters came out in 76. Ooh, or was it 78? Sure. Anyway, there was definitely some. UFO themes things going on since the fifties. This is huge. Totally. But the words enthralled the words used to describe like borderline Mm -hmm. obsession, things Mm -hmm. like that. Right. You can be super interested in something and not necessarily end up barreling into the bass Strait because you, (laughs) because you think you're being abducted by a UFO. That's a leap. That is a huge leap to make. Joe kind of tries to, portray Valentich as someone who exactly that has an obsession with UFO lore, uh, has had a personal encounter. So that kind of adds fuel to the fire. And he almost makes it appear as though Valentich's primary motive for being a pilot was to kind of pursue this kind of interest. That's what and yep. he, he actually kind of states, cause like he does get into the idea that both of his reasons for being in the air that night were invalid, right? The idea of picking up crayfish and the idea of picking up friends. There's no friends, there's no crayfish. So what was he doing? In Joe Nichols' mind, he was looking for a UFO. Yeah, but he was looking for it. Ergo, he saw what he wanted to see, and then he goes on to to talk about this yep. very fancy notion of this constellation, like you know, appearing in the sky and appearing very bright, and how he could have misidentified that as landing lights, and he would have, like, quote unquote, filled in the void right in the sky as like a metallic object. Right, it's all an illusion, an optical illusion. How does that move around? How does that orbit? Yeah. You would have to be doing some crazy aerial maneuvers yourself in order to make that sort of illusion appear. And if in that's my mind. the case, then he, he, those radio communications wouldn't have been as calm as mm-hmm. they were. It would have been, you would have been like a spiraling aircraft flying upside down when you don't know you are or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Like it's like that wouldn't have gone the way it, it did. Not to mention this was over a series of minutes, right? Because it was from about, he left the Cape at seven, or sorry, 1900 hours, so 7 p.m. And it was about nine minutes later is when he started having these sort of more weird interactions with right. the flight control center or whatever. So on the one hand, like to that point in the Skeptical Enquirer article, the idea that maybe he was deliberately going up there to look for a UFO. My question then is why, why by yourself? I know maybe you're trying to keep that interest from certain people potentially, maybe even your fiance, uh, if it's something that you know, conversation he had brought up a million times and she kind of was like into it, but not as into it as him. Like, let's not talk about this anymore kind of thing. So like, if I'm interested in it, I'll go pursue it on my own. Mm -hmm. He had acquaintances and friends and evidently other people that potentially would have gone with him on a flight like that. Mm -hmm. If you're just going UFO watching, right? He had, he had ample opportunity to do a flight like this many times other times, right? Like why choose the nighttime when you don't like flying at night? Why lie about getting crayfish? Why lie about picking people up just because you're going to see a UFO? I wonder if he had any, any inklings. It never came to light as to whether he had conducted his own investigations. If he had, you know, if he had ample reason to be, because there were reports and I'm going to get into this too, because you can call this bass straight 
its own triangle. There's some weird stuff. And there's some that weird happens. stuff. So perhaps he was drawn to that area because of that. That's Possibly. one hypothesis. Because for there sure. were some some. There's some no evidence to back that up though that he was actually actively researching this particular area in connection to paranormal slash UFO phenomena. We would just make that assumption because of his interest, because of him yeah. and his father uh, Guido. Mm-hmm. I, think, I believe that was the first name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, their, their interest in UFOs. I mean, sh- surely he would have been looking into some of this stuff, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a leap because there is no evidence to say, Oh, we found a, a notebook in his bedroom that said, you know, that talked about that or talked about pursuing it or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But it is really interesting though, because one of the main theories that kind of comes out of these very skeptical articles, like the Joe Nickel article is that he possibly staged this disappearance that this was some sort of a, uh, I mean, yeah, essentially a staged disappearance. If you want to go along the UFO angle that he staged being abducted by a UFO. Let's forget all the family stuff, like like not worry about relationship stuff. Think about mm-hmm. that, like just purely like if he was enthralled, that is an angle. Doesn't really add up and mm-hmm. neither does the suicide. Because he never returned. He never returned. He never claimed to go on. It's not as if it was some fantastic Lanulose adventure, right? Where he comes back and, and he says, like relates hey, yeah. all this crazy stuff. Exactly. He never came back. Exactly. And, you know, the thing is too, is like... Disorientation's another one too. Sorry. I'm, no, no, totally. Yeah, but just, to, to go back about this whole idea of him purposefully going out there to look for a UFO, we've mentioned that he didn't like flying at night. This was corroborated by Mike Hodges, who was an aircraft, uh, he was an aircraft mechanic. He was an acquaintance of Fred's. You could call them friends, potentially. Mm-hmm. They knew each other from around the, the, the airport. And he was the last person to speak with Fred on the ground before he disappeared that night. He actually gave Fred a ride uh, up to the runway bay. And he said uh, in a later interview that Fred sounded extremely anxious about the flight. Hmm. He chalk that up to being just could be typical nerves about going out alone and it being heading into the evening, but he wasn't sure if maybe there was something else going on. Hmm. Why would you force yourself into that position of being afraid just to go see a UFO? Like you can go do that tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like it was just like there, there, fe- there felt like there was a more specific reason. I'm going back to mafia, drug smuggler, something, something. He was coerced into making that flight. Potentially. I mean, people really had nothing but good things to say about Fred after this incident, though, just to add some more context to this. Just a good guy. Okay. (laughs) 40 years later, Steve Roby, who was the last person to hear Fred, this was the air air traffic control dispatch at Melbourne, he remembers this experience like the back of his hand. He Mm -hmm. thinks about it every day. It's like crystallizing your memory, no doubt. Totally. So this was an interview done uh, by the uh, ABC podcast. It's like an Australian um, research website and stuff. We'll have it in our show notes. 2018 interview and he kind of recounted the event talked about how he was obviously highly concerned because there wasn't supposed to be anything else in the air at that time the communication with fred he felt was genuine he was worried for fred's well-being Mm -hmm. there was no details of other aircraft and he felt very strange like he described the feeling of being ominous and strange and it became apparent to him that it couldn't be an aircraft because of the way that fred described it was moving and he believed what he was saying to him mm-hmm. in the radio communications. Uh, this was a direct quote. He said, said this of Fred. He was a very con- conscientious pilot. Like he cared. He followed the rules other mm-hmm. than the fact he logged a false reason for flying that day. Right. But other than that, he followed the rules except for flying into the cloud <laughs> and a couple other things, right? But he spoke to the report that claimed he was of sound mind and a competent pilot. So that's that was the report from the... Uh, Australian Transportation Authority, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. I can't remember the exact 
term, that they they concluded that he was a competent pilot. Mm-hmm. And Roby corroborated that. He felt he was competent. He didn't feel like that he was putting himself in a situation where he would have seen all this weird stuff and not been able to identify it properly and not been where he thought it was and essentially barreled into the Bass Strait never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. He doesn't believe that that's what happened to Fred. Yeah, and okay. I think that's definitely worth saying. Another key piece of this is his fiance Rhonda, who was yeah. interviewed just a few years ago as well. And she, uh, she had a lot of good things to say about him, no bad things at all. She said that he was very confident, always very kind, always trying to make people laugh and smile. They had met at Friends, but it was love at first sight for her. He had, he had flown with her, like we said before. She had gone with him to Newcastle to see her uncle. She had gone on many, many flights and always felt confident. And then by October of that same year that he disappeared, they were engaged. And their wedding ring was actually still on layaway. It was still set to arrive. So yeah. lots to look forward to. Yeah. Not to mention, not only that, like you're getting married, he is also very ambitious. He's still trying to obtain his commercial um, pilot's license. Yes. So he's not finished by any means. And so after this, yeah, she unfortunately Rhonda kind of suffered. The media went into a huge frenzy. She was harassed just like constantly. Yeah. Her and her family, like 24 hours a day kind of thing. Like, you know, they're out on the lawn, so to oh, speak. Yeah. She lost her job, but she was always devoted. She actually ended up getting a tattoo of the plane registration number or letters. Yeah. Yeah, the exact moment it vanished. Yeah. I'm curious if they could track down that farmer, if that would be the exact same. Um, numbers that he saw and wrote down on his tractor. Right. That would speak a lot to the mystery. Here we go. Coming back to the close encounters thing. This was a quote actually pulled from her. So she stated that Mm -hmm. he had a quote, small interest in UFOs and he loved the film close encounters. Uh, And he said to her, Fred once said to her, if a UFO came down right now, I would love to go with it, but not without you, Rhonda. So he was clearly in love. Clearly uh, had a lot to look forward to in life. The suicide angle. Not a thing. Didn't happen. Mm, yeah, really Didn't doesn't make suicide. sense. If, if, to me, the only other possible more mundane explanation on that front would be just pos- like real physical disorientation somehow. Like just an accident. Yeah. Just a straight accident. Mm-hmm. But then on that note too, all this stuff to look forward to, you know, uh, getting married really soon, all these things... Why? That's why another thing. I just think feel it's a leap that he was just going out there looking for UFOs that night, yeah. in a, over top of the Bass Strait. In what was it then? Though? Right, like because both reasons were invalidated. No, it's is it's so very intriguing. Let's get into this whole idea though that he could have been disoriented and sure. literally just flew into the Strait because that's where Joe Nickel heads with his sort of analysis. He kind of leans on the idea that. Uh, Fred was going to look for a UFO that he, the intention was planted. So it was already incepted in his mind. Therefore, what he thought he saw, he jumped to a conclusion, right? He right. thought he saw a craft. Yes. And <laughs> what he actually saw that evening was not a saucer, but actually a constellation of planets, including Venus, Mars, Mercury, and Atares. Ooh. So this would have been like a diamond shape. And he says here, this is a quote, it it's, has a well-known tendency of viewers to connect the dots. So it could have been perceived as like an aircraft or UFO. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, essentially he would have gone on to fill the area as solid, this is a quote, to even metallic, like the space in between. I'm curious, though, is there really no other even dimly lit stars in between any of those? Like You'd think. Like, it has to be so perfect. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was making this joke. Like, I can't remember exactly what I said when we were sitting on the couch a few days ago. I was, like, making the joke. It was just like, oh, the most likely explanation is, like, you know, 
the, this is a totally unlikely explanation. It's earthbound. It's an mm-hmm. earthbound explanation. But for all of this to happen is like a one in a billion. Or more. Yeah. It's like it, the circumstances have to be so perfect. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, it's earthbound, but it's like the same less odds as winning the winning the lottery. Yeah, so, exactly. I, I mean, it's a cop out. It's kind of a cop out in my <laughs> to mind. To a certain right? degree, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it relies on the presumption that he had had gone out specifically to look for a UFO, right? Mm-hmm. He's trying to find it. I just, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just not buying that. Uh, the most interesting thing, and the only thing that backs it up, is like we said, the coup, the the coup. There was a coup. The two contradictory reasons for his flight. And I think you're right. Let's talk about, I kind of want to skip ahead to the, the drug smuggling stuff. Drug smuggling. Because we you've mentioned it a few times. Let's we can come back it. to this idea of electrical discharge. Keep circling around. But that's okay. We're orbiting we're just, we're around orbiting. it. We're orbiting this. Mm. Because if you're stating that you're going to pick up friends that don't exist, that to me implies that you have friends that people don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe. At right? least an unexplained reason to go and do that. There, there was, yeah. Okay, so okay, let's break this down. So this is a crazy one, right? It doesn't have a ton of weight to it, but there's a lot of activity that involves drug smuggling and shootouts and things like that in this area of the Bass Strait, and this has become one of the main theories. Was mm-hmm. he either literally drug smuggling and got shot down, or was he was mistaken for another plane, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be? And then he was doing this communication with Roby as a distraction. Or like as some sort of a, uh, like I don't even know. It's right? a guy. Like yeah, it's a guy's, right? Mm-hmm. But there was nothing that we could really find from the late 1970s that would match up with this, despite the fact that there was definitely, you know, hardcore drug activity going on in Australia at the time in the 70s. There was crackdowns and different changing laws and stuff trying to curtail it. And by all accounts, that hasn't really worked necessarily. In 2017, there was a massive drug bust of cocaine uh, coming across the Bass Strait through shipping freighters. It was like a $70 million bust. There's been other ones more recently as well. Some of them are violent. There's even been like targeted strikes from the Australian military on, I think, oh, it, was, I think it was a Taiwanese ship that was like carrying heroin or something. It was like a known whatever. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> To suggest that Fred was involved in something that massive, like dealing dealing with drug lords, dealing with millions of dollars. Like the, the drug smuggling going through the Bass Strait is in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars range. Mm-hmm. So if you're a small-time pilot renting a tiny little Cessna, whatever, like are you really the type to be involved? Like he's a family guy, like, you know, grew up in an average household. And he's young. Where did you, you meet these people? <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. Or maybe because he was a pilot, an aspiring pilot, and he was young, he was vulnerable, and they approached him and tried to get him into the their society of sorts. Another thing that kind of maybe would loosely tie into this is Rhonda, right? Saying that she at times felt like she didn't always know what Fred was up to. Right. Didn't always know everything about him, but that he was a kind soul. It kind of reminds me of like the Irishman where everybody's like, he was a nice guy, nice guy, nice yeah. guy. And you never admit to anything, right? Because he's just, he's in the family or whatever. Right. And it's just, that's how it is. <laughs> Could this be the case? Is an Australian mafia sort of thing Doesn't going on? strike me as that at all. Not really. But. Not really. I don't we see it. We were throwing it. it out there because it is a, a commonly suggested theory. It is because of the fact that he didn't have any any explanation really right. mm-hmm. another earthbound explanation was potential electrical discharge from like a, we- a weather weather problem 
But then, yeah, exactly. So this is the idea that clouds might have caused an engine fire or mechanical failure of sorts or just contributed to disorientation or something to that degree. So this possibility could hold some water. (laughs) Pun Uh, intended. (laughs) Nice, nice. Because Valentich was known to have flown through clouds before. However, on the night in question, it was reported to be just clear skies. Light winds, clear skies. Yeah. This is interesting, though, because maybe perhaps there was a little little dust up, a little cloud cover that formed randomly, and he might have just decided to fly into it. And clouds can be dangerous. Like we already mentioned off the top here, like it can change air pressure, which causes turbulence. Inexperienced flyers can easily lose control. And there's like various um, levels of certification that you have regarding like different instrumentation to help you with controlling turbulence and, and things like that. that yeah. And as far as I'm aware, uh, he didn't have any of those. Right. The other is moisture. So this is a danger. So buildup of water can lead to icing over on a plane. The combination of night flying conditions and the possibility of running into clouds could prove to be a dangerous combination. However, like we said, seemed to have been a clear night. And obviously another idea is that it can obscure visibility and disorientation as a result. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't really think this is like another um, kind of unlikely explanation for me because it wasn't reported. He did state the conditions when he was in the air. Yeah. So it would have had to have been like just this one tiny little strange anomalous microclimate pocket that he flew mm-hmm. through kind of like the thing that surrounded Skull Island and Kong Skull Island. Oh, exactly. Or because... even or even those like clouds. I'm going back to Charlie Redstar again with those pilots when they were um, describing how it flew into a cloud and then disappeared. Right. Yeah, it would have to be something like that because he wasn't allowed to fly in those conditions. He never would have left the airport. And Roby would have communicated that with him. You're heading into this. Like, they would have had mm-hmm. those meteorological rec- like reports incoming. Yeah, like he would constantly. have been turned away. Anyways, I just I, I don't see this as being very likely. It is something we have to mention. No, it is, a, it is a potential paranormal aspect, though. Maybe this is no UFO. Maybe he was seeing some sort of a paranormal weather event. <gasps> Just like right? the, like the weird aberration on the photo yes. where it was like, it seemed like exhaust or something. Right. It's maybe not. not a, maybe not it was an amalgamous formation, just like maybe. that episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea we watched the other day. Actually, yes. Oh my God. The clouds and they're trying to shoot torpedoes into the clouds and there's these strange creatures in the clouds. So that was a combination mm. of like aliens and just a anomalous weather strangeness, kind of like mm-hmm. the mist or something like that. Love that show. Well, you know what? Maybe we're <laughs> heading it. We're heading in all kinds of crazy paranormal the- theories on that <laughs> angle there. So let's get down to the, let's get down to brass tacks here. Yeah. Let's get to the big one. Mm-hmm. The UFO at- abduction attack, if you will, if you want to think that the metallic scraping sounds was... was like harvesting them out of the plane. <laughs> harvesting. I like that word. <laughs> so many are really quick to jump on this UFO possibility, obviously because of what he describes. Um, and then there's, of course, the others like the jo- like the Joe Nichols of the world that are categorically against that. Mm-hmm. Um, they attack his credibility as both a pilot and a witness. Um, you know, based, basically based on character references. What's kind of curious about all of this is uh, the implication of Fred's father uh, Guido, who passed away in the year 2000. Uh, spoke out a lot about his son's disappearance, obviously over the years, and was an adamant believer that he would be returned one day. He believed his mm-hmm. son was abducted. Okay. He bought into the transcripts uh, and the recordings, the last uh, communications with Roby, obviously spoke with Roby and truly believed that his son wasn't, go- wasn't knew what he was doing, was competent enough to get there and back, mm-hmm. that he, he did corroborate that his son was interested in UFOs for sure. Yeah. So in that sense, again... And I'd encountered it before. And, and had, and had, yeah, exactly. And so in that sense, his dad doesn't necessarily help 
uh, the storyline for the hardcore skeptics, right? His, his dad even mentioned that, uh, like we said earlier in the show, that he had spoken with his son about the fear of a UFO attack. How serious of a conversation that actually was and the exact context, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Because when you sit here and you think tinfoil hat and people are like planning the bunker and like we're afraid of a UFO attack, it's like, yeah, that's crazy. But if you're talking about it in the context of having recently watched Close Encounters, yeah, that's not crazy at all. That's mm-hmm. what you and I do every two weeks. Exactly. So we're obviously insane. <laughs> um, Clearly. <laughs> so the big question, I guess, that we kind of tossed out earlier was like, if you are a firm believer in the abduction story that you think Fred was abducted, who abducted him and why? What type of shape of craft is interesting? Cigar shape? Well, the diamond shape, the diamond like almost shape, like a pyramid thing like we mentioned. Things like that. Mm-hmm. What happened to the plane? What caused the metallic scraping sound? And you had a really interesting theory about the metallic scraping oh, sound. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. I kind of forgot about this, but now you're jogging my memory. The idea, yeah, we've talked about Charlie Redstar as one example of like these changing shapes of craft, various sizes, right? Like Charlie appearing very small, then also appearing as large of a house sometimes. So the people that attack the credibility of the whole UFO hypothesis and also of what Valentich's description of what he saw in the sky that night, saying that right. it would be much, much too large to be any sort of cra- known craft. Yes. This it lends itself to a paranormal explanation. One thing I had, this is kind of another little side note here, in regards to the metallic scraping sounds that we saw, mm-hmm. or heard, sorry, is this similar to the metallic discharge of slag and other molten materials that was presented in the Maury Island incident? Mm-hmm. So this was when we had two witnesses, Fred and, oh, I'm blanking on the other name, they were on their ship at the time in the bay of uh, near Maury Island. This was in Canada. And they ended up seeing what appeared to be, um, I believe there was a few different craft, if I'm not mistaken. And one of them, they were like donut shaped. And then out of the middle of them, a bunch of material started to be ejected. Right. And they they described it as slag-like stuff. Metallic. Metallic and other sort of material. like papery, shiny things, like almost right. like uh, aluminum foil. So it's almost like... And I was just curious. I was like, well, apparently the dog was injured on board. Right. If you want to believe for their story at all. Obviously, that was another highly contentious one. Yeah. But I just had this idea. I was like, well, what if there was some sort of like discharge? It's over water. We've had a lot of different examples over the years of either, um, ex- not extraterrestrial craft, but unidentified flying objects dispersing things or picking up things out of the water. It's It's... Not out of this world. No, I mean, it, 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 did, <laughs> it did, is out of this it world. It is out but. of this world. Did Fred just get caught up in, uh, was he just, yeah, in the wrong place at the wrong time? Mm-hmm. He got caught up in this, just uh, a very simple uh, discharge or something Or it could like have that. even been something that was even more than just something physical. It could have been, uh, what's it called, uh, that electronic fog. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Maybe. Mm-hmm. There were, of course, people who did look... Shout out to Astonishing Legends for that one. Yeah, definitely. Shout out to (laughs) Astonishing Legends. There were, of course, people who did look more deeply into these sounds, into Mm -hmm. these strange metallic sounds. There was this researcher by the name of Paul Norman, who, along with uh, John Oshetti, received an edited copy of the original voice tape. And then another copy uh, of the recording was analyzed by the uh, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Another copy was then was uh, shipped to the United States for analysis. And according to MUFON, 
This was looked at by Dr. Richard Haynes, who, according to MoveOn, was a a former researcher with uh, NASA uh, and associate professor of psychology at San Jose State University. So he described the sounds as 36 separate bursts with fairly constant start and stop pulses bounding each one. So no discernible patterns in time or frequency. The significance of the sounds if any, has still to this day been undetermined. Weird, man. Which is pretty weird. That is in line with how we kind of described it, is like the like the can opener. There's kind of like, yeah, it's like, it's it's a grinding sound. There's some clunks in there too, but it's not uniform at all. Mm, um, it's not rhythmic very much. No. It, that doesn't really help us out all that much in terms of deciding what this actually was. But it definitely adds to the mystery, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So that there's some there's some questions here we have about the sound. Like, obviously, what would have caused it if we believe the plane was actually abducted? So was this the plane itself scraping against the side of another craft as it was entering? Or something else? Uh, or something trying to get into his plane, his craft? Right. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Laser beaming it in. Laser beam. Scraping it in. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> of course. No the, the, and, but, but of course, the, the main crux of the fact that, or not the fact, the, the belief, the, the, the angle that he was abducted was that there's no plane found. We never found Fred. We never found the plane. Wow. But according to some articles, mm-hmm. parts of the aircraft were recovered, Allegedly with a quote-unquote partial matching serial number. What does that mean? So that's what I, that's what I put in quotes. Yeah. It was like, what exactly does this mean? Because how definitive is this? Mm-hmm. Wait, what does it mean a partial, partial serial number? Like if you have one digit out of that, those six digits or whatever it was, how many other planes past and present might have had the same letter? True. Yeah. How many digits were on there? Um, What about coloring of this stuff? Like, you know, like, is there any other consistencies? Because by all accounts, like, yes, this was a thing, but it's not definitive because the Australian government hasn't recognized that they discovered Fred's plane mystery solved. Mm -hmm. He's crashed into the Bass Strait, right? Uh, There's a plaque commemorating his disappearance and that it's unsolved. That's an interesting bit of detail mm-hmm. but it doesn't it doesn't really prove anything well no and then move on kind of continue that note right because there was this other uh, australian researcher by the name of keith basterfield and he reviewed the quote-unquote supposedly lost government report that found quote parts of aircraft wreckage with partial matching serial numbers to valentich's cessna that were found in the bass strait five years after the disappearance right the lost report, which was apparently found. <laughs> lost and found. The, the Australian government did do, like, initially, like, there was requests from the family, and I think Guido, his father, ended up getting, having control of some information. And he was, like, requested. They said, like, you can't publish this or anything. He was, like, uh-huh. given information. Hmm. There was more available online, and they got taken down, like, like the original audio. That mm-hmm. was originally online. Now it's not. Hmm. It's this weird kind of hush-hush case, even though it's like super pro- prolific yeah. in Australian history. And that part of it too is kind of odd. Mm-hmm. And that is like, is it because there is a more like paranormal leaning or is it because it's involved with other sort of high high up government investigations into things that aren't paranormal at all? Right. You know what I mean? Like, is it is it a question of national security? Becomes my question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting down to the government conspiracy angle, totally. but not really. I uh, wanted to continue on with this whole like um, this UFO angle and the idea that the Bass Strait 
is kind of infamous for this thing. It's known as the Bastrate Triangle, and there have been disappearances over the decades. And I'm just going to quote a few that were kind of, there were, there were many, many, many ones, including individuals that were lost, um, ships that were lost, and of course, planes. Yeah. One of the most mysterious actually happened in October of 1934. So again, another October incident. This is obviously um, like 50 years prior to uh, the disappearance of Valentich. Right. And this was a <laughs> a very like, I guess you could call it like the the echelon of, of technology of the time. It was sure, a, yeah. a plane known as Miss Holbart. And it was a smaller plane. It had 11 people on board. And it was top of its class. It had four independent engines, which comes into play right. when we get into the disappearance Definitely. of this because they all disappeared. The entire, all the people and the plane disappeared during a regular flight service, very much along the same sort of neck of the woods. So going across the strait, I believe it was near that same cape. If I'm not mistaken. Anyways. Yeah, Cape Otway. I think so. Yeah, that's what we've been referencing. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of strange because, like I said before, four independent engines, the the likelihood of all four of those failing at once is very, very unlikely and was actually universally dismissed by all investigators involved. Right. And eerily, this is weird. So the last communications reported by the crew included the description of sounds of an engine all around them, a humming that stopped abruptly and they were never heard from again. Interestingly enough, the next year, another small plane by the name of Loina disappeared just after radioing Tasmania. All five passenger crew never found. There were small parts of this plane, including a couple seats that were eventually recovered, however. So that was two just like really... You know, they were earlier. I wanted to include them though because they were planes. They were in the exact same area at the time. And they do kind of speak to this weird zone, this triangle where things just disappear. Lots of, lots of definitely weird stuff happens mm-hmm. there. And like you kind of alluded to earlier, was this the reason that Fred was interested potentially? Exactly. Was he interested in this because of kind of the history and some of this? And there was others too. Like I've just pulled up a couple, not, not mm-hmm. in crazy detail, but you know, there was a flight disappearance in the eighties, you know, May 29th, 1942, there was a, a, a plane that, uh, that crashed kind of inexplicably, you know, 19 October 2nd, 1935, there was a, a small craft that uh, with three fatalities, unknown engine, problems Mm -hmm. um so definitely definitely something common in this area whether or not the research would had been done by fred to corroborate that he had gone out there just to look for a ufo we we don't know maybe Mm. we will find a journal or something someday maybe Maybe. Rhonda has that journal has never disclosed it perhaps maybe his dad has that we don't we don't know sitting in a dusty box unopened for decades and decades and no one ever uncovered it you would think though after a loss such as that you would go through every Thing that they owned. Yeah. Unless you just couldn't handle it, I guess. I don't know. Everyone's different. Everyone is different. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you guys, like, there's a lot of rabbit holes in this case, but we, we're kind of coming down to the end here. Yeah, we've and discussed a lot. We've discussed a lot. Mundane stuff, skeptical stuff, fantastical stuff. Yeah. We definitely want, we want to hear what you guys have to say, mm-hmm. for sure. What are your kind of final thoughts here? What do you think happened to Fred after the things we've talked about today? I think we'll never know what happened to Fred. I think he is one of those ambiguities in history, much like even an Amelia Earhart, right? You know, the the why, the how, where. Yeah. You know, we'll just it'll, it'll just continue endless speculation until For sure. 
until perhaps, like you said, that lost journal's found or yeah, something. Or definitely. His true, for me, the biggest part was the why, right? Like, why was he out there that right. evening? Yeah. Why? Absolutely. Why? The Fred? crux of the story. Why? For sure. God. All right. Anyways. Those dang crayfish, man, are the crux of the story. <laughs> Because I definitely feel the same way. I mean, I don't want to take a hard line one way or the other, but after researching this for the last, you know, three weeks plus uh, and reading about him, listening to some other podcasts and interviews and stuff with Steve Roby, with Rhonda, with, uh, you know, quotes from his dad before he passed away, the picture that's painted of Fred as a, uh, as someone who was that, that his inexperience would have definitively led to this. I'm not buying at all. The man that I've learned about from this research was that what those last words with Steve Roby were describing something that I think was legitimate, whether, and we will never know what Mm -hmm. exactly it was. But if I'm leaning one way or the other, I think a misidentified meteorological thing for someone who's being propped up as being inexperienced doesn't, doesn't add up as much to me as maybe he really did run into something. Mm-hmm. And it's very spooky. It's very sad. May Fred rest no. in peace wherever mm-hmm. he is. And maybe he's not dead. If you believe the UFO angle and his father firmly believed that he would be returned uh, up until the day he died. Definitely uh, a plaque we would like to visit when we get to go uh, mm-hmm. to Australia. Definitely. Eventually. Mm-hmm. For sure. So we want to hear what you guys have to say. We do have one more uh point we want to make before uh, we end this episode today. Uh, we uh, got some bad news in the world of sports and the world of just the world in general. Uh, so this epi- episode is dedicated in loving memory to Kobe Bryant, who passed away this morning in a tragic helicopter accident. Mm-hmm. He was a hero of mine growing up. I was, I, I was and still am a huge basketball fan. He changed the game. His contributions were beyond words can describe and he'll be forever missed Mm -hmm. so this episode is dedicated to to him and his family and um yeah yeah thank you all for listening and of course you can always get at us at into the portal mailbox at gmail.com we want to thank everyone including all of our supporters over on patreon including our producer jordan Yu. thank you so much all of you guys we got a really fun episode coming down the pipe for you uh for the end of this month so stay tuned for that giant turtles what absolutely anyways yeah so hope everyone has an awesome sunday slash monday by the time we get this up (laughs) (laughs) yeah just in time for your monday that's that's right and until next time on into the portal your gateway to the bazaar. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.